This episode is sponsored by Stanford University's Strategies for Sustainability Professional Education Program. Explore the frameworks and tools needed to promote sustainability in your organization. Courses online and in person. Visit globalimpact.stanford.edu. From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at GreenBiz headquarters at 350 Frank Ogawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On this week's edition, life after Walmart in a sustainability startup, Microsoft doubles down on carbon pricing, why mainstream investors are increasingly worried about climate change, and consumer activism coming to an app near you. We're swiping right this week on 350. It's April 19th, 2019. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. Joining me, as always, from across these United States is Green Biz Editorial Director Heather Clancy. Hey, Heather. Hello, Joel. How are you this week? Uh, you know, um, it's going exactly as I planned it. Everything. Just as you dreamed it. <laughs> exactly. No, it's good. You know, it's a good week. We had lots of people coming through the office, uh, great meetings. Um, I don't know. It's, uh, you know, April, it's, um, it's busy, 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 but that's every month. But it's also a, a little bit of a calm before a storm, the storm being May and June, which are heavy travel months. We have our Green Biz Executive Network meetings uh, for three weeks in May. I know I'll see you in New York. Um, in I'm the, so excited about that. Yeah. Yep. And, um, and then, of course, circularity after that. And in between, oh, yeah, I'm going to Europe for a couple of weeks. More we'll talk about that some other week. But um, so yeah, just trying Poor to thing. get a lot. Poor thing. Well, it's it's pretty much a work trip, but still. Yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah. But. Um, so yeah, trying to fit in a lot of stuff for the rest of April, and uh, you know, it's 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 a hamster wheel, but you know, it's I have to say, it's kind of fun being a hamster. But we love what we do. Yeah. We love what we do. How about you? Mm-hmm. How's everything in jo- have- Joyzy world? <laughs> Well, I've been grappling this week with many, 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 many Earth Day pitches. Oh, um, that's right. It's Earth Day. Yes. Yes. Earth Day. But every day is Earth Day, right? So they say. Yeah. It is for yeah, us. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So um, excited, though. I have to share some fun news personally. It has nothing to do with sustainability, but my um, quartet and my chorus, my acapella quartet and my acapella chorus, had a competition last uh, last weekend, and uh, my chorus came in second, which is awesome, um, with 40 people less than the first place chorus, which is kind of a big achievement. And my quartet was the most improved quartet, so I'm very proud of, of my little singing career uh, on the side. And um, well, I don't know I just about had Im- to share that. I don't know about improved, but I did watch the video, and you guys were awesome, and it's so much fun to watch you doing your thing uh, in the music world. You, maybe we should uh, put a, a link with a time code on that, on the uh, page for this week's webcast, just for those who want to see 
the other side of Heather Clancy, um, the acapella uh, singing group side. It, it, it's cool. I'm, I'm, I'm really, we all get tickled to watch those videos of you singing and swinging and uh, good old fashioned acapella group. I mean, that, that's one of the other things that fascinates me and intrigues me about the Green Biz world, Green Biz group world, is we have so many um, diverse hobbies and interests uh, among the staff. It's, it's just a pleasure and, and a joy for me to get to understand and know um, the personal interests of, of our team. So it's yeah. fun. We have act- actors, musicians, uh, athletic stars, uh, just all kinds of folks who have all mm-hmm. kinds of talents. And... Uh, we love helping deploy them uh, in the world of sustainability. But let's move over to the world of sustainability and the Week in Review. So I'll start us off this week, um, Joel, because the second I got off stage, I, I got to start writing a story <laughs> about one of my um, longtime favorite companies, Microsoft, and I say longtime favorite because I think they were one of the first companies I covered in my career, period, um, as a tech reporter. So, And it's fascinating to me that I get to, to watch what they're doing in the world of sustainability. And um, they made a pretty bold announcement this week. Uh, they are going to double the carbon fee that they've been charging their, their business units um, for their emissions to about $15 per metric ton. So that's a that's a pretty bold move, you know, and the the thing that they're going to use that you know the month that money for is to look at opportunities, business development opportunities that are inspired by sustainability. So the president of the company, Brad Smith, is challenging the entire Microsoft workforce to look at the technologies that they're developing and look for applications that are focused on solving this climate change problem, how to use artificial intelligence and cloud computing in particular to go solve the big thorny problems that um, other companies have and at at the same time create new revenue streams for Microsoft. So this is one of those things where the, the, you know, one of the top leaders of the company is saying, listen, folks, um, other companies and other businesses need to to respond to this, and this is for us, not just um, you know a responsibility for our own selves, but it could be an opportunity. So that that was a pretty amazing shift, and and I think what's even more interesting right now is that Microsoft is doing all of this stuff very transparently and very loudly, while um, one of its chief competitors on the cloud computing side, uh, Amazon, is getting hammered <laughs> for um, not being transparent for and for being um, somewhat, I won't say two-faced because, because that's not entirely fair, but, but, but really being challenged on on some of its own business practices, not just from the outside world, but from it, by its own employees. There's a shareholder resolution um, that is challenging the, the board to get a whole lot more transparent, to set some specific plans in place to deal with climate change. And now there's like, I don't know what the last count was, but close to 6,400 Amazon employees have signed a petition saying, you know what, we like this resolution. Guys and gals, let's, let's get on this. Yeah, uh, and going back to Microsoft, I think what's really cool. So they've had uh, a car- internal carbon price since about 2012. Uh, this is something where each department gets, I guess, a budget of some sort, and they have to uh, to uh, pay for any a certain amount of 
carbon emissions and it goes into a internal fund that's used had been used for efficiency uh, and other investments around uh, the company's energy use primarily or, or sustainability performance in general. So now they're going to start looking externally for how can they deploy that money in that fund to uh, create new sources of business value. And that's pretty cool. And, and, and I guess it's new sources of business value that has something to do with sustainability solutions. Is that right? Yeah. So, so to be frank and fair, they're going to look for startups that are working on um, environmental data problems, for example. Um, they have a deal with, they have a relationship with Ecolab, a company that we know well um, that focuses on water management and services. And what um, Ecolab and Microsoft have done together is to, to create like a cloud service that um, helps organizations better understand their, their own water usage um, and, and what facilities are, are in you know, good standing and what, which ones aren't. Um, so they're, they're challenging their, their team to go find startups and, 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 um, and also establish companies that could have their own sort of services focused on addressing these things and you know, take advantage of that. So yeah. Yeah, well, and speaking of big companies working with smaller ones, we had a, a related story, I guess, in a, in a certain way, by our contributor Carol Klaus about big brands working with smaller innovators in the war on single-use plastic. Uh, and this is a, a world of, of, where the big companies are, are Nestle and some of the other big global brands, Coca-Cola. So, um, yeah, what's, what's going on here? So, in particular, I mean, the, the, what Carol had noticed was that there were some some pretty notable small companies. Um, I mean, small to midsize um, that were were striking these deals with enormous, enormous uh, big brands. You know, so the the specific example that she leads with is a company called uh, Danimer Scientific. Um, they're a biotech manufacturer in I think it's Bainbridge, Georgia, and now they're a partner of Nestle, and they're basically focused on on helping Nestle with their, of course, their big bottle problem. Um, in, in you know how do you how do you get rid of single use bottles um, and how do you make basically move on from 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 there and provide pro provide al alternative options so they're doing um, some work with Nestle as is a company called Pure Cycle uh, they do plastics recycling uh, and so there's just there's just great these great opportunities um, for startups especially in the chemical recycling or or bio bio alternatives, um, uh, basically space that, that are finding really good partnerships. Um, Pepsi and Nestle and oh, I, I you know and there's also this wonderful example. Um, this one is actually I think my favorite. There is a, a company called Seed Phytonutrients, and it's a it's a company that's got um, they're not entirely paper based, but they've they've taken a lot of the the plastic out of the packaging for shampoo bottles, and they're really reducing that. Um, and they they were started by, lo and behold, a member of L'Oreal's uh, executive team. So this this L'Oreal executive, Shane Wolf, was sort of looking at his own business um, operation and said, you know, how can I help solve this? And went out and and basically got this this startup going, um, and uh, has really helped kind of shape that that new company and 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 they're they've, they've got a thing called shower safe it's a shower safe bottle it can you know sit in the bot in the in your shower and not melt on you not fall apart but it's kind of a kind of a neat story an internal incubation effort that 
that turned into a um, business opportunity. So, so yeah, all of those companies, Nestle's, Coca-Cola, PepsiCo, and a bunch of others have uh, are under the gun uh, by Greenpeace and a number of other groups uh, called like uh, Plastics Ocean International and uh, a number of, of efforts by other groups to uh, get rid of uh, plastic uh, waste. And a lot of them have made commitments to do this already, uh, even though those commitments are out to 2025 or 2030. And so, yeah, you've got to look for uh, through these innovative companies and you've got to start partnering and looking outside your four walls. And that's exactly what's happening here. And there are dozens of technologies, uh, new materials out of things you could imagine and things you couldn't imagine um, and lots more to come on that front. So this is a great font of innovation that is critically needed right now. I was really glad to see this. Um, and speaking of plastics and waste, uh, Lauren Phipps, our uh, director and senior analyst on circular economy, had a piece about chemical recycling. Now, do you know what that is, Heather? <laughs> yeah, I had that. Had the great pleasure of speaking with IBM about this topic uh, uh, about a month ago. It was one of my better read stories this year. Um, they, it, it, you know, basically handling. Um, recycling of plastics, but not with, as in a sort of mechanical way, shredding the stuff and, and so forth, but using uh, various chemical approaches. And so this, this is, is what we're going to require to get, to get this uh, processing happening at scale. And so there's a lot of, there are a lot of people talking about chemical recycling of plastics right now. And I love that Lauren did this piece because number one, it, it sort of uh, helps you fine tune your thinking about what to seek and what to look for, right? There's lots of different types of recycling schemes being uh, talked about. So all all chemical recycling is not alike. Um, there's lots of different materials that that organizations are addressing and so forth. And then also, you know, I love that <laughs> love that she really does make a, a note of the fact that that not everyone is using the term in in the same way. So it's just one of these things as the hype cycle begins. Uh, just a great primer and a set of tips for us to keep um, ourselves honest, if you will, and to, to help our community sort through all the different noise, uh, news and noise and announcements that are flying around about this right now. So Yeah, and this is an important development. I mean, it's been around for a long time. It's been on the shelf more or less because there was no business reason to do this, but most of the recycling of things like PET soda bottles uh, involving, as you said, sort of sorting, shredding, and washing the plastic, and it, it's been fine, but it doesn't result in, in food-grade PET. It's, uh, it, it's stuff that can has to be downcycled into some other kind of use. So one of the main problems of recycling PET has been the very limited supply of food-grade uh, polymers uh, made from recycled material. And and so that's made it more expensive than PET. And so a lot of plastic that can't be recycled ends up in landfills because there's just no market for it. So this is a technology that um, is being talked about a lot. I hear it keep coming up over and over and at conferences and articles and all of that. And so I love, as you said, that uh, Lauren, well, broke it down for us and uh, what's going on and, and what's uh, the limits here and the potential. And so, yeah, I really encourage you if you're sort of looking at the recycling space and how we're going to get, uh, you know, through this, uh, this, these commitments that the New Plastics Economy Global Commitment and the Alliance in Plastic Waste and all of those groups, this is the article to read.
This episode is sponsored by Stanford University's Strategies for Sustainability Professional Education Program. Help your organization move sustainability from the margins to the core of its mission. Courses online and in person, visit globalimpact.stanford.edu. Hi, this is Katie Fehrenbacher, Senior Writer and Analyst covering Transportation for Green Biz. And this week I chatted with Walmart's former Senior Director of Supply Chain Sustainability, Elizabeth Frethheim, who recently, as in this month, moved to Arizona and joined a startup building hydrogen-powered electric semi-trucks called Nikola Motor Company. Nikola unveiled a suite of trucks this week that big corporate fleets like Anheuser-Busch are hoping to buy to ship goods with zero emissions. In fact, Anheuser-Busch has committed to buying up to 800 of these electric semi-trucks when they get built in 2022. I grabbed Elizabeth on the phone on the eve of the event to ask her why she took the plunge to join an auto tech startup after a decade leading clean fleets at Walmart. Sustainability has been a passion of mine for many, many years, and um Growing up in Alberta, Canada, where the focus was on, you know, the the main industry there was oil, that kind of secondarily became a passion of mine to look specifically more at how do we transition to cleaner energies. And as you know, and all of your readers will know that we're a little bit behind on hitting our climate goals. And so when I was looking for something new, um, you know, I really wanted to find somewhere where they were looking at really a revolutionary a revolution in transportation and technology. You know, I don't think we have the time to just evolve what we're doing. We really need to revolutionize. And so I wanted to find somebody that, that was looking to move fast you know, find real sustainable good solutions, but, you know, move as fast as they can. And Nicola was doing both. Wall Street has been paying closer attention to climate change. And over the past few months, some of the world's largest institutional investors have become more vocal on the issue. And they've been in integrating ESG, that's environmental, social, and governance data, into their analyses and investment strategies. And with good reason, extreme weather and other manifestations of a changing climate could upend company fortunes across a range of sectors and geographies. Recently, Mercer, which is part of the Marsh and McLennan companies, issued an update to a 2015 report offering climate scenario analysis for investors and the implications for companies. The report offered a model intended to provide institutional investors with guidance on how to manage climate change risks. I recently spoke with Alex Bernhardt, Mercer's U.S. responsible investment leader and one of the report's authors, about the report. And I began by asking him why the original four-year-old report even needed updating. We've been researching climate change for over a decade, and actually our, our first formal report that was issued externally came out in 2000, 2011, and we had a consortium of investors representing about a, a trillion dollars in assets support that research, and we updated it again in 2015 after significant time had passed and some you know, updates in underlying climate research had had evolved, and we felt after, again, three and a half, four years that the time was again, ripe to, to update our 2015 analysis, in part because there's growing focus on 
a climate change issue amongst investors and uh, and companies in response to the TCFD or the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, uh, as well as a, a number of regulatory movements that have taken place in the last three or four years. There's also been quite a number of advancements in academic research around the economic impacts of climate change, the prospective economic impacts, I should say, of, of climate change. And so with all that all that underlying change, it seemed like a, the time was, again, ripe for redoing the analysis. So what did you find? Give us the synopsis. The key takeaway, really, is that a two-degree scenario is both an imperative and an opportunity for investors. And, and it's an imperative because no matter how we, how we look at it, a two-degree scenario looks better for investors uh, at the asset class level, at the total portfolio level, uh, better than a three-degree or a four-degree scenario, which are, are the, the two other scenarios that we looked at. And it's also an opportunity in that we, we see a lot of potential sectors and asset classes that can actually benefit from a transition to a low-carbon economy that, that we'd see in a two-degree scenario. Uh, they show positive return impacts in, in, that, in that scenario, whereas in a, in a three- and four-degree scenario, there's mostly just downside, it's, and it's mitigating that downside that you're focusing on. Uh, as an investor. So again, so two degrees is, is really uh, become the focus uh, as a result of this research. So one of the big t- dynamic tensions in all this is short-term investor interest versus the long-term changes that companies need to be taking to uh, reduce their climate-related risks. How do you see that that's even being addressed in any way? The, the tragedy of horizons, as Mark Carney called it, is, is a real issue and one that investors and companies, I, I understand, are, are all really, really grappling with now. And, and, you know, climate change really challenges our our time horizons insofar as it's taking place now. But really, the worst effects aren't aren't expected until the second half of the second half of the century. Um, and, you know, investor timeframes typically range from, you know, quarterly through through to maybe 10 years, 30 years uh, at max, uh, depending on the investor type and the particular exercise that they're working on. And so bridging that divide is a key, a key challenge and something that we're really trying hard to do with this report is, is make sure that, that investors are able to contextualize this future potential impact today. And one of the key innovations that we embedded into our report that was just released is a, an ability to stress test portfolios. And so this basically uh, allows investors to calculate uh, the so-called present value impact of climate change on their portfolio. And so what, what we do in that stress test instance is assume uh, assume that the market reprices for climate change quickly rather than gradually over time, which is what our, our scenarios really, really look like. They're gradual scenarios. Uh, and so, you know, the markets have the potential to and, and oftentimes do reprice risk really quickly. And so uh, with that stress testing capability, we can then quantify what that impact is in the short term and allow uh, investors to treat climate change more like they would uh, other scenarios that they typically look at. So who is the audience for stress testing inside companies? Well, amongst uh, amongst investors, it would be the asset allocation teams or the, the uh, asset liability modeling teams. Uh, the, the CIO office, anyone who's in charge of overall risk management of the portfolio, I think, would be particularly interested in in the, the stress testing capability. And, and for companies that have retirement plans, that have exposures to the capital markets, uh, have diversified investment portfolios, uh, similarly, you know, the, the retirement plan managers, whoever they might be, um, will also have an interest, I think, in those stress test outcomes. Uh, there are some sector level returns uh, and impacts that we're able to produce with our climate change modeling. 
approach, and those might be interesting to companies that operate uh, in some of those sectors. However, the, this is really really oriented towards towards investors uh, as a tool for them to to manage their portfolio risks. Yeah, but part of that it has to do with the conversation between investors and their portfolio companies. So, is anybody listening mm-hmm. at the company side? Well, definitely, and and there are growing coalitions of investors that are they're really trying to focus on this climate change issue. Uh, you you probably heard about the Climate Action 100 Plus initiative, which includes dozens of, of investors now uh, that have signed up to it, uh, and they're all engaging with companies that are are uh, some of the largest emitters of, of carbon to try and get them to address climate change risk in their business plans. And and then with the you know the pressure from regulators in in Europe in particular, where you know we've seen uh, the the European Commission and the pension legislation in 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 Europe uh, actually now mandate disclosure uh, of ESG issues and how how investors are addressing climate change risks in their investment policy statements and and then of course the you know voluntary initiatives like TCFD as well are really putting putting this more uh, at the forefront of of investor agendas uh, and so we are definitely seeing investors pay more attention to the climate change issue and 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 they're you know indirectly uh, going to be paying more attention on how their companies in their portfolios are behaving on this issue. And so, yeah, you should expect to see a lot more uh, interaction between investors and companies on, on climate change risk as time goes on. What do you think the role is of the chief sustainability officer or other high-level sustainability professionals inside portfolio companies to further or accelerate this conversation? I'd say primarily the role should be to start interacting, if you haven't already, with your finance colleagues, with your with your colleagues uh, on the investor relations teams and treasury, uh, in human resources, to the extent that those, those human resources colleagues are involved with retirement plans, and you know, make sure that climate change is something that they're thinking about. Uh, it's it's a risk. It's a risk to individual businesses, but it's also a risk to investment portfolios that that uh, companies do uh, do manage either in their uh, retirement plans or sometimes in their own in their own capital pools. Uh, to manage in-house, uh, so um, you know, climate change should definitely be uh, beyond the register of of the of corporate finance uh, writ large. And I think it's up to CSOs to to really drive the educational uh, wagon there, <laughs> for lack of a better analogy. Alex Bernard is U.S. Responsible Investment Leader at Mercer Investment Consulting, one of the principal authors of investing in a time of climate change the sequel for 2019 thanks so much for talking to us alex it's my pleasure bill thanks for having me Consumers and activists often talk about voting with your money to spur companies to lean into any number of topics from climate change to labor and LGBT issues. And over the past 30 or more years, only a small sliver of consumers have been actually willing to do that. One reason is that it's hard. Another is that it's difficult to tell whether your actions are actually making a difference. Brent Shulkin is trying to change that. This serial entrepreneur has launched Money Voice, a platform to help consumers spur companies to make positive changes. He joins me now. Hey, Brent. Hey, Joel. Thanks for having me. Tell us a little bit about uh, how Money Voice works. Yeah, so I got really interested after years of working on this concept of voting with your money on this idea. And it's a really core piece of psychology of how we relate in commerce. And the way that this app works is... When you install Money Voice, you link a payment card, so a debit or credit card, and what that does is it imports your purchase data 
uh, about where you're spending money. And for every purchase you make at any business, you earn one vote, which gives you the right to vote for what you want that business to do. So for example, if you go to a grocery store, uh, buy some groceries, you might get a notification that says, oh, Joel, you spent uh, $83 at Safeway, uh, you've earned one vote. And you think, oh, of course I deserve the right to vote. At Safeway, I just gave you $83. And so you can open up the app and on the Safeway screen, you would see a list of feedback from other verified customers. And some of the things might say, oh, I want you to sell this product or do this thing or put a woman on your board of directors or put a bike rack outside. And you get to decide with the power in, in your purchase what you want to vote for. So maybe it's things like going 100% renewable or stop using plastic bags and, and so on. Yeah. So this is an app that you put on your smartphone. And, and how do you know that companies will actually respond to that? So the thing that we're bringing to companies is a few different types of value. They're already seeing all kinds of noise on Twitter and Facebook and change.org petitions and stuff. And some companies are more responsive and, and it's more important to them to respond and some aren't. But we're bringing something which is much more efficient and easy to respond to. And it's also very important because money is attached. Because we're not just saying a bunch of people on the internet are yelling at you about this. We're saying we can guarantee that these are, you have you know, half a million verified customers who ask you to do this. And we know that how much money they spent. So we can demonstrate that there's real business value in responding. And that if you do respond, you're going to drive loyalty. You're going to drive sales and uh, get some real value out of it. Have you gotten uh, companies to say, wow, this is great, uh, you know, have at it, I want to hear from our customers? Or are they sort of like, I don't know, we sort of hear more than we want as it is, and customers say one thing, but they don't necessarily back it with purchases? Yeah, well, we have definitely seen excitement from companies. We've had, you know, a few businesses that have responded, such as BART and Good Eggs, and then some businesses have actually made changes. So we've had a, in just our early experimental period here, we've had a Mexican restaurant put their first vegan item on their menu in response to customer feedback. And we have another restaurant who decided to ban plastic straws based on this feedback. And it's because they initially didn't know if their customers would revolt if they ban plastic straws, and then this gave them the confidence that their real customers actually cared about this and that, that they would uh, respond well. And part of your plan, I understand, is to uh, create a, a business app as well as a consumer app. What's the business side of this going to look like? Yeah, so we're sort of in a fundraising to, to build out that side of it. And what we're going to see is a business can go, they can claim their sort of profile for free, see the response, the, see the feedback they're getting and send responses to those customers for free. And then if they want, we'll be able to say, hey, we'll give you financial analytics. You can see how much money was spent by the people who voted for this. We'll give you predictive analytics saying, hey, if you Marriott Hotel, half a million people asked you to install smart glass windows. If you do that, you can expect to see an increase of, you know, X percent increase in loyalty and sales in this cohort. Uh, and so you really start to reveal the ROI of taking these sorts of actions. And those insights are extremely hard to come by for brands like that. So that's where we're really going to shine. So is there a business case for companies to do this? I guess I get the potential for increased loyalty, but what about beyond that? So some businesses want to engage with their customers and build loyalty, and we help with that. Other businesses just want to have better insights into what their customers want and actually, you know, because consumer demand is what we're talking about. They want to understand that. But what I'm really interested in is how 
this can fundamentally change the economics of the types of solutions that you know those in the sort of green biz verge world are looking to advance. So if you have something like smart glass windows at a hotel, for example, or you know sustainable materials in an Apple iPhone, um, right now there's demand for things like that that's invisible. And there may be 10 million people going to Marriott each year who care about climate change and would love to support a business that switched to these better windows, but that's invisible to Marriott and, and they can't take advantage of that. And so by default, it maybe, maybe it doesn't pencil out for Marriott to take that action. But what we do is we come in and translate with this app, we translate our sort of customer desires into actual financial data that they can use to predict and to see that ROI and it reveals that opportunity. And so now that actually changes the economics because the business knows, hey, if we do this, we get to message half a million people, we know that they're gonna spend this much more. And so that just brings sort of this additional marketing benefit and sales benefit to bear on the economics that I think it can make it possible to accelerate our progress in a lot of these sorts of solutions. And if you crack the code on green consumerism, uh, more power to you. Brent Shulkin is founder and CEO of Money Voice. You can check it out at moneyvoice.com. Thanks, Brent. Thanks a lot. One additional note to that story is that Brent is uh, running a crowdfunding campaign to build the business part of this app. Uh, check it out, wefunder.com slash moneyvoice. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. Go to greenbiz.com slash 350 and you'll find things you want to know about the organization's stories and events we mentioned in this episode, including Heather Clancy's acapella video. Uh, while you're there, check out our other podcast, Center Stage, the best of live interviews from Greenbiz events. Our email, 350 at greenbiz.com. And don't forget to subscribe to one or more of our five weekly e-newsletters. Heather's Verge Weekly comes out on Wednesdays. My Green Buzz newsletter is fresh every Monday morning. And check out the other three on transportation and mobility, clean energy, and the circular economy. Heather and I will be back next week, as usual. Until next time, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks for tuning in. 